Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are going to begin our introduction to the book of Nam tonight. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Nam? As every book, we always do a full introduction, kind of to get a good overview and breakdown of the book. Tonight, it's the introduction to Nahum. Um, he is the seventh minor prophet. The first six that we have studied spoke prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom, um, by Assyria in 722 B.C. You have Obadiah in 845, Joel in 835, Jonah in 765, and this morning I kept saying 6065 instead of 77, but it's okay. The math was right, the day was wrong. Amos uh, 760 B.C. and Hosea 740, and he was the sixth in chronological order. And then you had Micah 735. Now, there are three minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom by Babylon from 605 to 586. You have Nahum, which I also have put as 710 B.C., but having studied it now more personally, is probably about 650 B.C. But they do give him a late, later date also, so, but I go with 650. Um, Sephaniah. 625 B.C. and Habakkuk 608 B.C. And then there are three minor prophets after the return of the captivity from Babylon, 536 to 425 B.C. And those will be those that we still have after the next two. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so, major, minor prophet. But even if we didn't have the dates, the dates make no difference to me. If they're minor prophets, major prophets, they're all prophets that spoke by God. And they spoke to a people, they spoke to a circumstance, and there's prophecies, there's warnings, there's instructions for the people of God. Now, we can put some of these dates on, great, but the dates are really not the important thing. Now, Nahum is one of the six minor prophets here who doesn't date his prophecy in the opening. Others are Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Habakkuk, and Malachi. And Nahum is the sixth or the seventh in order of our English Bible. But in the Greek Bible, he follows Jonah, which is kind of interesting because Jonah preached and they were forgiven and 150 years later comes Nahum. So um, interesting that um, um, in the Greek Bible that way. Now Nahum has um, one single message. The judgment of the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And there is not one ray of hope. Her injury has no healing, and her wound is severe. All that can come from God is judgment, and that's the last verse of the last chapter. No hope. So let's um, look at the introduction to Nahum. 
to get a good understanding of the judgment that's coming to Nineveh. And we'll do as we usually do, give you some headings, and then that'll kind of just uh, divide the book up. Uh, we'll begin with the prophet Nahum, then we'll move to the book of Nahum, then we'll do the times of Nahum, and then we'll walk through the message of Nahum. So the prophet Nahum, the name of the prophet Nahum was very relevant to his prophecy. If you look at verse 1, Nahum in the Hebrew means comfort or consolation. As I said this morning, it's a shortened form of Nehemiah, comfort of Yahweh. And uh, it is found only this one time in the Old Testament, though you do find that name one time in the New Testament uh, in the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3, Luke, verse 25. Nahum would be a comfort to Judah, who would hear that God was going to judge Nineveh, who had been oppressing Israel. The northern kingdom's in captivity, but the southern kingdom has been under great oppression and tribute to Assyria. Assyria is the leading empire of the world right now. Comfort from judgment on a person should not be understood simply from the perspective that a person has been injured or made to suffer for what they have done. Comfort from the biblical perspective is that God has vindicated himself of all the affront of sin that is against him and his grace and his patience to save, and that is that it deserves it as righteous judgment. So as that God vindicates himself. So as we said this morning, God doesn't take a revenge or get even like you and I like to do. Um, but he vindicates his holiness, his his right to judge because he's God and he's perfect, perfectly holy. Now the man Nahum was God's prophet, as verse 1 says, revealing um, by the word burden, um, referring to the prophetic oracles regarding the doom of Nineveh, a divine judgment from heaven. The prophet Nahum was um, not venting his anger. He was not delivering his own opinion. The prophet was the mere vessel of instrument of God, even in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 20 through 21 says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. Now, the New King James, the Old King James says interpretation, but that's the proper translation of no personal source or origin, no impulse or origin. That's what the word interpretation is. It's a, wrong, it's a bad translation. Um, in other words, they didn't speak as they wanted to, but they spoke as the Spirit of God filled them and directed and guided them. So the origin of the revelation was not human, but from God. And that's the gist of it. Um, Nahum was one of the many through whom God had spoken and revealed his word. Again, you have major and minor prophets. And we made it a point to distinguish between those that the general consensus is that the minor prophets are not as large and the major prophets are larger books, but that doesn't even hold true. As far as I'm concerned, they're all major prophets, they're all big leaguers, and they're all speaking under inspiration. Now, the prophet reveals that the oracle came through a vision. As you know, a vision is uh, while you're awake and the dream is while you're asleep, and that's the two modes, one of the two modes that we have God's revelation. 
At other times, God just spoke to people. He spoke to Nehemiah. He spoke to Joshua. spoke to different people. And um, Nahum was the mouthpiece of God, and he's speaking forth the future events of judgment that are going to come. And there would be no way that he would be able to know these things if God did not reveal them. Just as it would be impossible for you and I to know that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth unless he revealed it to us. It would be impossible to know that the first day he did this, the second day he did this, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, he revealed it to us. So it's God's word. The origin of Nahum here, still in verse 1 of the prophet, is that he's a, a, an Alkashite. Again, some believe it's a town in Assyria, north of the side of ancient Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, but um, east of the Tigris River. But there's no evidence that he was ever in uh, Assyria or was taken captive. And still others believe it's a village 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in Judah, um, around the same vicinity as Micah the Moorishite. And that is most likely the case. Um, Jerome said that it was a small village in north of Galilee and that there could have been villages in different places of the same name we have the same um, in, in our time you know um, Vegas you have you punch in Vegas you, they're all over the United States so um, there is the city of Capernaum on the northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee it means the city of Nahum so he probably had some origins there. We just don't know the order, the chronology, all those things. Um, many speculations and conjectures come in that he was from the north and then through the oppression of Assyria, he moved to the south, Morishite, or not Morishite, but Eshkelite there. And, um, and that's from there. And evidence internally, as we'll see, um, he is dealing with Judah in that area. So most likely that uh, it was that. Um, but again, he, um, he identifies himself uh, by this town. So this is the prophet Nahum. Uh, the book of Nahum, um, let me give you the natural division of the book. In chapter 1, you have the prophet um, declare the certainty of judgment. And, and there's no glimmer of hope at all. As you move through it. In chapter 2, the prophet declared the devastation of the judgment. The description of, uh, of, of the carnage, of the warfare, the chariots, everything that's going on. Um, they're to prepare, but to, to no avail. In chapter 3, the prophet declared their depravity, meriting judgment. They were an affront to God. And so, um, just three little chapters, but what, a, what an incredible message. The particulars of the book is that the book contains 47 verses in our English Bible. Chapter 1 has 15, chapter 2, 13, and chapter 15, 13 verses. And the Hebrew and the English chapters and verse do not always coincide Nahum chapter 2, verse 1 through 14 in the Hebrew is equivalent to Nahum chapter 1, verse 15 
to 2.13. So verse 15 in chapter 1 in the Hebrew text is verse 1 of chapter 2. So they differ a little bit. The prophet Nahum is considered as one of the prophets uh, of poets or poet prophets of the ancient Hebrew. One declared Nahum bears the plant, the, the psalm for poetic power. Another says Nahum's short book is a uh, pindaric ode of triumph over the oppressor's fall. Still another said Nahum's language is strong and brilliant. His rhyme um, rumbles and roars, leaps and flashes like the horsemen and chariots he describes. The first nine verses bear an alphabetical acrostic form. Some say eight, some say nine verses, each respective to bearing the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And um, But again, this in critical commentaries, there are people for it, against it, there's different things, so I give you the two. Now, the city of Nineveh is mentioned three times. Chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 8, and chapter 3, verse 7. The king of Assyria is mentioned once in chapter 3, verse 18. The indisputable central theme of the book, again, is the sure destruction of Nineveh under the judgment of God. Verse 1, the burden against Nineveh. Verse 2, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he will reserve wrath for his enemies. He's talking about Assyria, Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 3, and will not at all acquit the guilty. In one eight, he says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make it an utter end of its place. One ten, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. In one twelve, thus saith the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. In other words, I'm only have to take one pass through you. I'm not going to have to come back twice. In Nahum here, one fourteen, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molten image. I will dig your grave for you are vile. This is just the first chapter that says all these things. There's no hope for her. Now, you say, well, what if, what if they would have repented? That, that's not the, the thing is God knows they're not going to. It's been 150 years since um, Jonah has preached. We don't know how soon they reverted back to their sinful lifestyle, but God has waited 150 years before he brings it to pass. Um, a hundred years Noah to Nahum when he preaches, and then 50 years after Nahum preaches, which makes 150 years. Now, let me give you some key verses 
um, chapter 1, verse 2 to the beginning of 3. Uh, the judgment is in view of God's holiness and um, um, his patience uh, with all their wickedness. It comes to a close. In chapter 2, 13, judgment comes from God, not man. 3, 5, judgment is, comes after a lifestyle of sinful depravity. In chapter 3, verse 19, judgment is self-inflicted. They brought it on themselves. Some contemporaries of Nahum, the prophet Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. So this is the book of Nahum. We have the times of Nahum. Where do we fit it historically? We've gotten a date. But the history of Nineveh, remember that as we studied Jonah, we went over some of this information for the sake of the CD and those listening when they get this book. Then uh, they'll have it also. Um, it goes back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, where um, Nimrod uh, founded the city. So it's as old as way back in Genesis, the beginning. The city followed Asher as the capital of Assyria, and the capital moved around to other locations uh, near Nineveh, now Nineveh was the capital. Assyria was named after its chief god Ashur, a god of war. They were very cruel people, as we'll see. The first Assyrian gained uh, its independence from Babylon sometime before 1500 B.C., but um, had only sporadic periods of greatness. Uh, Asher and I'll give you some names here that you probably won't even remember, but just to give you a, a list of going back from the 1500s. Asher Ubalit, the first, you have 1363 to 1328. Now remember, when you're going from Genesis this way, you're going downward, okay? Then you have Tukil T, Minurta, the first, 1243 to 1207 B.C. Tiglath-Pileser, the first, you have 1112 to 1074 B.C. Ada Marari, the second, 909 to 889 B.C. And Shalmaneser, the third, 858 to 824 B.C. And Adad Merari, the third, 809 to 782 B.C. Now, the most important of the rulers in terms of the history is the second Assyrian Empire because it's most relevant to the biblical history that we're looking at. You have Tilgath-Pileser in the third here. Um, and again, that's why you have first, second, and third. You have to distinguish them. He's from 745 to 727. He invaded Syria and northern Israel in 734. Shalmaneser, 727 to 722. He besieged Samaria, and he took Hoshea captive. 
Sargon III, 721 to 722 BC, destroys Samaria and subjugated Babylon. Sennacherib, 704 to 681 BC, conquered Palestine because remember um, that that's the, the name that the land is known by to many commentators because the Romans had named it like that. Um, and he destroyed Babylon. Ezra Haddon, 681 to 669 BC, he conquered Egypt in 671. And then Ashurbanipal, 669 to 626 BC, he took Babylon from his brother Samas Samukin in 648, who took Manasseh, the most evil king of Israel, of the, northern, of the southern kingdom. He took him captive to Babylon and established the greatest library in the ancient times of 20,000 volumes. So they had a long history. They were in power for many, many, many years. A very gruesome nation, a very cruel nation. The Syrian Empire began to disintegrate around 626 B.C. and Ashurbanipal, the Ultimately, the nation was destroyed in 612. So, um, the record of this is uh, confirmed in many different records. One of them is the Babylonians' chronicles at the British Museum. And um, the interesting thing is that um, Alexander the Great, when he marched through that area in 331 B.C., there was no evidence at all of his existence. So complete was his destruction that the city became a myth for two millennia when it was discovered in 1842 by Layard and Bota. And we see much of this many times. You have the higher critics or the... Um, um, you have form criticism and redactive criticism of the learned men who are educated beyond their intelligence. And um, they tell you why it wasn't possible that this could be or that that civilization or nation never existed or that this biblical account is nothing but myth. And so God just humors them and God gets an archaeological guy to go out there and dig it up. Um, the Hittite dynasty was the same thing. The Lao Hammurabi, many different things um, that God has done such cases. And this is no different. Now, the possible location and time, some place named during the reign of Hezekiah around the time of Sennacherib, when he invaded Judah around 701 B.C. Um, others place him in Manasseh's reign, who reigned for 51 years from 697 to 646 in 2 Kings 21.1, it tells us. Um, this date is closer to the um, Babylonian captivity that Judah went into. Now, the internal evidence is vital to this answer. Um, Nineveh was destroyed, as I said, in 612 B.C., and their army was finally destroyed at the Battle of Carchemish, in 605 B.C., um, the wicked counselor that is um, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11, uh, 
from Nineveh to Jerusalem refers to Rabshakeh that was sent by Sennacherib in 701. If you remember, he sent him and they talked to the men on the wall and they blasphemed God and they boasted how there was no God that could deliver from them and everything. And um, consequently, you know, the guys on the wall went back and talked to Hezekiah in 701 and they laid the letter out before him. Hezekiah went before the Lord, spread it out, and God sent Isaiah, the prophet, to him. And he said, listen, not an arrow is going to be shot. Not a one Assyrian man will cross this gate into the city. And God sent one angel out that night and killed 250,000 frontline Assyrian troops. Amazing. You find that in 2 Kings 18, verse 19 through 35. Nahum mentions the destruction of no Ammon. So looking at all these events, you find that in chapter 3, verse 8. This is the famous capital city of Upper Egypt. The city of Thebes. No Ammon is the city of Thebes. And um, the question there is, if they were better fortified to avoid their own destruction, then no amen. <laughs> so, by that declaration in chapter 3, verse 8, Nahum the prophet is saying it was already in the past. So, that gives us an idea. 701 B.C. was conquered by Sennacherib, In 671 B.C., it was conquered by Esarhaddon. We're talking about thieves. And in 663 B.C., it was conquered by Ashurbanipal, who overthrew the city in 665 and 666. Ashurbanipal, inscriptions found in the ruins of Kuyunjik in 1878, the king himself tells of his capture of thieves. So Nahum had to have written sometime after the conquest of Noaman in 663 B.C. because he mentions it. Perhaps between 660 and 650 B.C. would be a date for Naaman. Okay? We have to make sense of the internal content to make our decision. After we search it out, if there are no markings that we can do, then we say we don't know. But at least it gives us some markings here. Um, so he follows the time of Isaiah into the reign of Judah's most wicked king, Manasseh. Manasseh reigned from 597 to 646 B.C. So I put Nahum at 660, 650, somewhere in there in that period. Now, the pertinent historical events within the time are important so you can see the flow of history. I've given you some history of the Assyrian kings. But Egypt successfully revolted at the closing years of Ashurbanipal. The Medes became powerful and dangerous as a foe. And the Scythians up north swept down from the distant north, spreading desolation through the wide and fertile Mesopotamia plains. The Scythians are mentioned by Paul. 
He says Scythian barbarian can be saved. The Scythians were those northern Scythian tribes that took their captives, cut their heads off, boiled their skulls, and used them for drinking goblets. I presume you qualify for salvation. That's the power of the grace of God. Here are the Scythians. Okay? These did not venture to attack Nineveh, but they robbed it of much of its prestige. At the death of the king of Assyria, Herodotus, the historian, tells us that the Medes attempted an assault on Nineveh, but were obliged to abandon the attempt because they were summoned back to defend their own homes. The Medes, 18 years later, about 614 B.C., they took and attacked the major um, Assyrian city of Asher and Nabopolassar made an alliance with their king and together the Medes and the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, continued their attack until Nineveh fell in 612. So these are all the things that are going on. Even as we are contemporary and we see all the stuff that's going on between Iraq and Iran and, and Israel and all the things in Pakistan and Korea. So we, 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 we know all the conflicts that are going on and all these things. Well, the same has always gone on. Um, somebody always wants a bigger piece of the pie. James says, where do wars come from? They come in from your inward members. You, 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 you desire to have, so you, 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 you kill, and you, you know, you have not, so you ask not, because you ask amiss, it's consuming your own lust. So wars come from within. Man is uh, selfish. He, he always wants to get more. He's never satisfied. And so that's the reason why there will never be peace on this earth. If you look to the years of war in comparison to the years of peace, it's a joke. There will never be peace on this earth until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And whenever they're peace, they're preparing for war. It's just the way it is. So the prophetic time had come upon Nineveh. Nahum proclaims that in chapter 1, verse 1. And the burden, the prophetic judgment. Uh, Nineveh had been given much, therefore much more was required of her. Luke twelve forty eight. to those who much is given, much more is required. God has sent the prophet Jonah. They had repented of the preaching of Jonah. Um, jo Jesus told the Pharisees that greater than Jonah is here. <laughs> and the men of Nineveh repented. So they had the greater accountability because he was the son of God. He was the Messiah. So the same rule that fell upon the Syrians after Jonah fell upon the Pharisees because the greater was Jesus instead of Jonah. Jonah had come again in 765, and um, though reluctantly, and he saw what he um, was afraid he was going to see, they repented. Uh, some believe, again, Jonah might have had some family members, as we made mention of that in the north, and they, through the raids of the Assyrians, had been killed or taken captive, and that's why he hated them so much. Very, very possible. Uh, but apart from that, there were um, natural reasons why Jonah uh, would not like the Ninevites very much. They were very vile, cruel, and gruesome. The Ninevites were known for their fertility cults, so they were very steeped in the... Uh, 
in the um, uh, sexual perversion of uh, male and female deities. The Ninevites were known for their child sacrifice. They were known for their cruelty that extended to many cities. And many cities would commit mass suicide as they would know that they were coming. That's incredible. They would skin people alive. They would tear individuals um, um, uh, apart, tying them to horses. They would bury people alive up to their heads, exposing them to ants and take their tongue, pull them out and, 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 and put uh, nails or whatever through them and leave them just to die. They'd go insane. They would carry away their captives by placing hooks in their lips, tie ropes on them. Uh, Amos mentioned that. Uh, they were just not very nice people. Now, you know, we, uh, we, we have a little bit of that in our day that we've seen many of these terrorists as they burned that, that Jordanian pilot alive in the cage. We've seen the beheading of uh, countless Christians on the beaches there. We've seen atrocities. So these guys were a hundred times worse than we've seen. And what we've seen is bad enough today. The walls were 150 feet high. The city was impressive. It had its city proper, formidable size. It took three days to cross it in four suburb cities around it, making it um, 60 miles around. Uh, as I said, the walls 150 feet high, enough for three chariots to drive abreast. The walls were fortified with 50 towers, 250 feet high. That's impressive. This is just 25 feet. 250 high. That's incredible. The walls were fortified with um, guards on them all the time. They had spacious gardens, orchards. Pastures and grain fields being self-sufficient from within. Because you know how you would overtake cities. You would surround them, cut off water, food, let no one in. You starve them to death. So the most important thing was water and food. So you would always try to have some water source that would come into the city and you would hide that source. Hezekiah did that when he made Hezekiah's tunnel. When we go to Israel next month, we'll walk through that probably. And um, if you're depending on others for water and food, you're dead. God made reference to the um, population of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, 120 children, 120,000 children didn't know their right hand from their left. So very, very, very conservatively one million, but probably two million. Uh, there was no birth control at that time and the more kids you had, the better off you were because see, children used to be valuable because children meant that you could work your farms. They could help you. You have a big family. You're going to get old. They're going to take care of you. Today, children are a liability. We put more stock on a brand new car. We have a child. They're going to cost us taxes, college, 
clothes, food, and all they do is sleep. The mentality has changed, and much of it by the indoctrination of the world, when they want to reduce population. They do it through telling you the world is overpopulated, which is a lie. You can still put the entire world in the state of Texas. If we're a little bit over that now, and I think we may, take another state. The rest of the world is empty. Okay? Three-bedroom house for everybody. So people don't get married as young. They don't have as many children. You have abortion, and now you have a promotion and legalization of homosexuality that can't produce. You're hitting world population from five to six different perspectives. Then you have those who are sterilizing themselves permanently. The politicians and the leaders of the world are not stupid. Everything has changed. The city at Nahum's time is thought to be a greater number than that of Jonah. Now Nineveh was about 150 years again after Jonah, and God was going to judge her completely. Um, Nineveh had presumed, neglected, and abused God's grace, and they had returned to their sinful lifestyle. We don't know how long. We're not giving those details. The God of grace, mercy, and slow to anger, and abundance and loving kindness had come to the end of his patience, his grace, and he was about to destroy them. The very thing that Jonah was wishing, now had come to pass. <laughs> Nahum declares the utter destruction of Nineveh for her pride, oppression, idolatry, cruelty, and defiance. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. So complete was her destruction that by the 2nd century A.D. the site had become uncertain. So these were the times of Nahum. Gives us a very good idea. Let's finish up with the message of Nahum. And what we're going to do, we're just going to take a walk through the park, through Nahum, so we can see the flow of it. And then in the weeks to come, we'll take a chapter at a time. First you have chapter 1, the doom of Nineveh declared. In verse 1, the introduction identifies the burden as the oracle and vision of God, not names as we've noted. In verse 2, God's wrath is justified being righteous anger against sin. God is jealous against sin and his sinful enemies due to his holiness, as we pointed out this morning. God is a consuming fire to avenge his holiness. He says this in Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29. Now when God takes avenges, avenges himself, it's not vengeance or payback like you and I do. Okay, His is just, it's deserved, and it's absolutely perfect, righteous judgment. In verse 3, God's patience has an end. God will not acquit the wicked. Uh, Psalm 1 contrasts the man who 
walks and sits with God and the one who does not. Um, the scriptures are very clear on this throughout. God takes vengeance on those who do not turn from their sin. It's very clear. Um, Paul the Apostle deals with this in Romans 2, 3 through 5. It's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. He says, do you not know this? Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 through 12. God will return to take his fiery vengeance on those who have oppressed the believer. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's not slack concerning his coming. So he, he would much rather forgive. He would much rather deal with individuals by his grace. But God alone knows who will come, who won't, when they will, or if they ever will. But once that line is crossed, then God brings judgment. In verse 3 there, the end of it, down to 8, God's ways of judgment are sovereign. You look at uh, verse 3 to 5, God has power over nature in a very picturesque language it speaks there. Um, many times he does this about the Mount Sinai, the Red Sea, and Jordan. Uh, God is awesome in judgment. None can escape or stand before it. Verse, one, verse 6 says there of chapter 1. And then in verse 7 through 8, God is good and stronghold in the days of trouble, a protection to those who trust, but not destruction to them, but only to his enemies. So on the one hand, you have protection, those who trust, but those who oppose, God destroys. Again, he's in no hurry to do it. And God doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't blow his top as you and I do. Uh, he's in full control of his senses altogether. In fact, the overflowing flood uh, is descriptive of how Nineveh was partly destroyed there in verse 7 and 8 due to the overflowing of the Tigris River washing away a section of the wall, as we'll see. In verse 9 through 11 of chapter 1, God's judgment cannot be thwarted by any device. Verse 9, God will be swift. It will not raise up or rise up a second time. Nothing they devise will avail or avert destruction, and there will be no need for a second visitation. In verse 10 of chapter 1, God will overpower them. The imagery of thorns fit for fire. Chapter 3, verse 15 tells us that. The imagery of drunkenness describes the men in the city when it was taken in the drunken feast, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 11. Now, in verse 11 here of chapter 1, God will not be defeated by their wicked counselor. Now, this um, destruction so complete again that, um, that, that no one even thought that Nineveh existed. It was just one of those mythological things, but uh, such was not the case. In verse 12 to 15, God's judgment would comfort Judah. In 12, God will destroy them despite their security um, and multitude. God is not impressed with numbers. God is not afraid of tanks or nuclear weapons. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't even phase him. He's not biting his nails. 
In verse 13, God having used Assyria to chasten Judah would relieve her by destroying her. So he fights for Israel. Um, Remember Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 through 19 says the same thing. Assyria was the rod of God's anger. Chapter 10, verse 5 of Isaiah. In verse 14 here of chapter 1, God would obliterate Nineveh's name and God's for their vile living. Then in verse 15, God would allow the news to console Judah. Glad tithings that the hearing of Nineveh's destruction would bring great comfort to Judah, who has been under great oppression and tribute to the kings of Assyria. And these glad tithings are the glad tithings of the gospel to come in the future. He's quoting Isaiah 52, 7. Paul picks it up in Romans 10, 15. Again, verse 15 here, chapter 1, is in the Hebrew text, is verse 1 of chapter 2. Now in chapter 2 comes the doom of Nineveh described. Okay? It's declared in chapter 1. It's described in chapter 2. In um, verse 1 and 2, God announces the invading armies um, and tells them to prepare for battle. Verse 1, these are the armies of Nabopolassar and uh, Kyaxeres of Medo. They, are, um, they were to man up, to watch, and to strengthen and fortify, but once again, to no avail. God is getting ready to fight, and when God is ready to fight against somebody, they end up losing all the time. The reason being that God would restore to Israel what the Assyrians took as God used them to chasten Israel, verse 2. So we're going to see this also. We saw with Assyria, Habakkuk is going to have a problem with that um, because God uses a more wicked nation to chasten his own people. And then they go a little further and God turns around and judges them. Okay? Verse 3 and 4, chapter 2, God describes the armies invading the city. Verse 3, they are fierce, mighty warriors armed for war. Verse 4, they are fearfully jostled through the streets of Nineveh. In verse 5, God describes the desperation of the Assyrian nobles at the wall of defense. The river Kosher had Seleucus and gate for Nineveh's moles for her walls. These were, uh, with the Tigris River, undermined the walls. The Lord had already declared that he has his ways to work through nature and no one can stand before his indignation in chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. So God uses natural means in a supernatural way. He uses the instruments that we have around us and he uses them as he wills. In verse 7, God describes their humiliating defeat. They were led captive and broken in spirit. Verse 8, God describes how the Assyrians used to refresh themselves, but now... 
may run away. Verse 9, God describes her plunder of silver and gold and her inexhaustible treasures. See, all these things, they, 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 they massacred everybody, tortured them, took all their valuables. So you've got all this stockpile. When that stuff starts coming down and you're being invaded and there is a horror of war, none of those things matter. Not at all. Look at verse 10. God describes her desolation, faintness of heart, pain, and fearful faces. 11 and 12, God describes how Nineveh once was a lion, but now the prey. Verse 13, God describes himself as her true enemy. When we get to chapter 3, you have the doom of Nineveh deserved. Declared, described, deserved. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the city was a bloody city full of lies, robbery, and unending victims under her oppression. I think of the United States, 57, 58 million babies aborted. It's one thing to kill people. That's bad enough. But when mothers kill their own babies, and it's the tenor of the nation, God help that nation. God will not wink at it. Verse 2 and 3, the city would be filled with a multitude of corpses in the siege. Horrible. Verse 4, the city would be judged for her occultic practices that has seduced and infected other nations. See, America is partly responsible for the corruption of a lot of the world. The promiscuity, pornography, drugs. There's a great judgment on America, ladies and gentlemen. To those of much is given, much more is required. Verse 5 and 6, the city would be opposed by God. In verse 5, the beginning, the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see the term Lord of hosts, that's the captain of the armies of heaven. When he uses that term, he's going to knock you out. He's going to war against you. The rest of five, the Lord would lift up her skirts over her face to expose her nakedness and shame to the nations. This was a practice to expose a woman's unchastity to public gaze. You find it in Ezekiel 16, 37-39, Isaiah 47, 2, 3, Jeremiah 13, 22, and Hosea 2, 3. Verse 6, the Lord would make the city more vile and a spectacle. Verse 7 of chapter 3, the city would be pitied by some at the display of her disgrace, which she 
deserved. Verse 8 through 11, the city was no better than others God had allowed to be conquered. In verse 8, he mentions Noaman that we've already mentioned, the Egyptian capital city of Upper Egypt of Thieves, who was well fortified, but fell. 701 B.C., conquered by Sennacherib. 671 B.C., conquered by Ashurbanipal. 663 B.C., conquered by Ashurbanipal. When you look to verse 9, no allies were able to help her. None escaped. Children were killed. Honorable men were sold. And great men were bound in chains. Chapter 3, verse 10. No one likewise would escape in Nineveh. It would be drunk conditions out of fear. Chapter 3, verse 11. goes back to chapter 1, verse 10. The city was ripe for judgment as ripe figs falling to the ground. Verse 12 of chapter 3. The city would be overwhelmed with fear as cowards. Verse 13 of chapter 3. And the city in her Preparations for the battle would be to no avail. Chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. The city was burned by fire. Verse 15. The city commerce would be destroyed. Verse 16. Verse 17. The city's commanders and captains would be slow to move due to fear like locusts and grasshoppers in a cold day. Verse 18, the, city, the city's king would have no more kingdom. The last king was Syracuse. The city's injury has no healing and wound is so severe, and all who hear will celebrate her destruction, for she deserves it for her wickedness over others. Verse 19. You remember the writing of Belshazzar, Mini Mini Tekel Eupharsin, in Daniel 9:27, and his knees began to smoke one against another. Your number's up, and you're dead man tonight. Let me close with some important reminders to all generations from the book of Nahum. One, God is unchanging regarding sin. Though he is slow to anger, he will not acquit the guilty. Chapter 1, verse 3. Two, God rules in the affairs of men and nations and brings them to an end. Chapter 1, verse 14. Three, God is not impressed by past glory or wealth. Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Four, God has a stern warning to any nation or person who turns its back on God, having partaken of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 5. Fifth, God points out Nineveh as a perpetual type of the present evil world who parades itself 
in its sin with a false sense of security, thinking they will escape the judgment of God. Chapter 3, verse 8. Sixth and last. God's judgment is deserved and comes only when there is no hope of salvation at all. Chapter 3, verse 19. Wow. This was and is the message of Nahum. And so, you can better understand the book as you move through it verse by verse and as we take the time to take a chapter at a time. Only three chapters, but what powerful chapters. Uh, God made no mistake in putting Nahum in here. Not at all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your love. And Lord, we just pray that you would just continue to work in our lives. Help us to heed you, to obey you. Help us to take the warnings and to not trust in ourselves. And so, Lord, I thank you tonight for the people you brought and their desire to learn and grow and to become more like you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to fill us with your spirit and glorify yourself as you bring people and as we just continue to just teach your word. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Being good is not good enough. Being sincere doesn't make you right. But being convicted that you are a sinner in need of salvation is exactly what God desires to reveal to you. And if you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation, then it comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. As he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And therefore, as God poured his wrath on his son, he paid for all my sins. He took my place. And if I will believe that he did that for me, then I can call upon him and have my sins forgiven. And he says... He gives me eternal life and makes me his son. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And so faith must always direct you back to the revelation of God's word, not your emotions, not your feelings, but God's word. It is the plumb line, the measure and the standard. And so if you see yourself in need of salvation, whether you're here or over the internet, you can accept Christ Jesus right now. Repent of your sins. It's a prayer that you must make. No one can make it for you. So if you want to be born again and walk out of here a brand new creature, knowing that if you die, you go to heaven and that all your sins are forgiven and you can have fellowship with God, then you can make this prayer right now and he will do it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.